Issues Etc. listeners are needed to vote for President of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has the right to vote through a pastoral and a lay voter, two voters per congregation or parish. Voter registration must be completed by Midnight Central on March 19th of 2023. Request to be a voter at your congregation for president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Learn more at issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. The Bible's teaching of the end times can be confusing, especially if it's not being properly taught. It can be a little scary, especially if it's not being properly taught. But how is it properly taught, and why do pastors continue to need to teach and preach what the end times teaching of the Bible is? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We interviewed Dr. John Bombaro on Friday. He is Director of Theological Education for Eurasia for the Office of International Mission of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and author of a series of columns titled Preaching the End Times Better. Last time we talked to him about why pastors need to be preaching on the end times and the dangers of false teaching on the end times. Let's pick up where we left off with Dr. Bombaro's answer to the question, how does the Christological interpretation of the end times relate to the principle of Scripture alone? Well, Jesus, not only does he teach us in Luke 24, but constantly, almost two score times in Scripture, he tells us about the law and the prophets. He'll make this appeal to the law and the prophets to actually show us the way of interpretation. And in fact, the epistolary, the epistles that we get in the New Testament, are the apostles actually obeying this Christological determinative principle in their interpretation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Not only does Jesus show us, but then they exemplify how to understand and interpret all of the scriptures. And these scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, are full of eschatological end times communications. Jesus and the apostles show us the trajectory of all these things. And as Peter has been showing us, but I would also say Paul and John as well, Christ himself is going to be determinative. So Christ Jesus and the New Testament authors, they frequently use this statement, according to the scriptures, to unpack the ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The epistles were written with that, inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to us as authoritative canon for Holy Scripture in both doctrine and practice by interpreting the scriptures in the light of Christ. And they express this everywhere. For instance, in Second Peter 3, verse 2, and in verse 16, also in chapter 2, 1 Timothy 5, 8. And not only do we have that interpretation of all of Scripture in the light of Christ, but Christ himself with his own body determines for us what will happen to the physical earth when he himself is bodily resurrected. And so we see this applied, for example, by St. Paul in Romans 8. And this is wonderful. This is where Scripture is constantly confirming itself. In Romans 8, 22 to 24, we see agreement between what Peter is arguing in his second epistle, that Christ is determinative, and Paul is doing the same thing as he writes to the Romans and says this, We know 
that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? So here we hear Paul talking about the creation itself is groaning. It's waiting to yield up humanity in resurrection and itself to be resurrected after the likeness of Christ, where death no longer will have a grip on us, nor corruption or sin. So let's stay with Paul for a bit in 1 Corinthians 15. How does Paul employ a Christological interpretation there? Well, he sees Christ as he is the firstborn from the dead, and linked to Christ, the first fruits he's talking about. So we've been already participating in the resurrection by the resurrection of our spirits in the waters of holy baptism. So the idea of a total end times resurrection scenario is also a misnomer because resurrection is happening every time someone undergoes the waters of holy baptism according to Christ's institution. We're united to Christ in that respect. And in the Eucharist, it becomes even more graphic with respect to the physicality of the resurrection to come. One of the ways that we celebrate and hallmark this within our liturgy is that the Paschal candle is lit but two times for a person. One, upon their baptism, and so the Paschal candle, which is the the Christ candle, the candle of the resurrection, is lit to signify that the light of Christ is now in this person and that they're participating in resurrection, namely their spirit. And then again at their funeral. During the funeral divine service or Mass, that candle is lit again and usually put at one end of the casket as they're brought in, again bringing full circle the idea of the promise of the resurrection of the body. Our salvation is not fully complete for us. Of course, the promise is sure and most certain, and it's guaranteed and anchored in Christ's resurrection. But for us, we have that assurance of the resurrection of the body, and so we placard that before the congregation itself. Paul is playing off of those themes right there. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits of Christ's resurrection by resurrecting our spirits. And because he is resurrected, we have the pledge and promise of the resurrection of our own bodies, what St. Paul calls the adoption to sonship. Now, this has happened in terms of justification, to be sure. And then we have been given an earnest or deposit, as it were, of the resurrection by being gifted with the Holy Spirit. The completion of our adoption includes our bodies, and so Paul is grounding all of this in what we know, in fact, has happened to Christ Jesus. He has been raised from the dead, and this is why the testimony, the bearing witness to the fact of the resurrected Christ, is the anchor for all Christian hope. What facts regarding the end times does Peter address there in Second Peter 3? Well, he's addressing the fact that the things about Christ and the things about the end times have been spoken of in the prophets by Christ himself as the Lord, who's communicated in the gospel how things would play out, and that that message has been passed on to the apostles. 
And so there are three groups all linked together by the Word of God and the activity of Christ and the anchor of the fact of his death and resurrection that brings them all together. Paul wants them to know that they know these things, that they have been brought to them, and that they've come to bear upon them specifically in their own baptisms, and then by further extension in their participation in Holy Communion, in which there's a continual parousia until the final parousia of the Lord. Where does a denial of these facts, where does it lead? Well, it leads to a number of problems. One is the errors that we had noted before will lead to a false hope, a false hope that in some eschatological scenarios that the prophecies of Holy Scripture are going to be fulfilled by a geopolitical entity like Israel. And ever since 1948, with the reconstitution of national Israel, the dispensationalist community, and particularly lots of evangelicals and Pentecostals, have clamored around, staring almost myopically at what's taking place there for the fulfillment of scriptures. And based upon that theology, all kinds of predictions concerning the end times, the return of Christ, have popped up. And these things have been damaging to the faith of many. The denial of these facts also will unmoor one from a Christological interpretation of Scripture and lead people astray, as I've just mentioned. Peter's also deeply concerned about the Christian life and sanctification. He's concerned about the morality and the ethics of the people, unmoored from the fact of the death and resurrection of Christ, unmoored from the fact of his abiding parousia in Holy Communion, and his presence with us by his true voice being heralded in the preaching of the gospel and the reading of the scriptures, a different kind of life, an ungodly life, a life of ungodliness can result. And this can bring a whole host of harm, not only to the individual Christian, but it can shipwreck an entire church and a community of faith. How do false teachers of the end times, how do they rob their hearers of the assurance of Jesus' continued presence? I think because, again, of their myoptic hermeneutic, they're looking at their own particular scenarios. They've been cut off from the wider testimony of Holy Scripture, as well as the the abiding presence of Christ. So they see no need for moral restraint because they themselves are free from accountability since Christ said the judgment would come upon his final coming, which they are, again, denying. False teachers rob their people of assurance because we don't have the hope of the resurrection. False teachers rob Christians of the assurance of Jesus' continued presence when they do not recognize that Christ is really present as he has promised to be, especially in Holy Communion. The denial of the ongoing parousia of Jesus' self-giving in, in Holy Communion should be one of the principal focuses of Christian devotion, to know that Christ is present and present for us, pro nobis. This is the height of Christian assurance, not the idea of Jesus is up there and out there in the by and by in the sky, and that all that we're going on is, is words. Now, mind you, these words cannot be broken, and that God is true. But the Lord goes so much further than that. He abides with us in the Word and in the sacraments. We're not left alone in this world 
in hopes that maybe one day Jesus will come back and rescue us. He's with us even in the difficulties of this life now, in all of the hardships, in all the sufferings. And even though we may not be experiencing it acutely now, there have been times galore throughout the history of the Christian Church where the abiding presence of Christ in the heralding of the Holy Gospel, the Gospel communicated to us in the liturgy, and especially Christ present in Holy Communion, really was an anchor for them. You know, Luther talked about in his times of depression, anxiety, fear, he would go to Holy Communion because it was there that his sufferings were dispersed. They were diffused amongst all those who were sharing in the body of Christ, the one who had suffered on our behalf. So that it's so important for us to maintain that Jesus's return is not this thing in the distant future or alternatively a surprise moment, but that he's with us even leading to the final parousia. In other words, for us, the transition should come as almost natural and and welcome, moving from the first advent to the continual advent of Holy Communion to the final advent of Jesus coming. Always present with Christ, familiar to His voice. We know His voice and we recognize Him, but we also know His presence and we take comfort in it. False teachers rob their hearers of these things, of Christ's continued presence, when they say that when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, that is no longer means is. And once you unmoor Christianity from having to conform to the objective reality that Jesus states is in fact the state of affairs, well then Christianity is going to retreat back into kind of Gnostic forms. We're going to turn inward on ourselves. We're going to listen to the inside voice. We're going to trust our heart. Or alternatively, if we do look outside, we're going to be looking for Gnostic teachers to lead us in the way. Dr. John Bombaro is our guest. We're discussing preaching the end times. When we come back, how would he correct a reading of 1 Corinthians 15 regarding the words, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh? Find out the means used by great Lutheran music composers to convey meaning in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for March, Lutheran Music and Meaning. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about Lutheran Music and Meaning at issuesetc.org. Lutheran Music and Meaning by Dr. Daniel Zager. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month, 1-800-325-3040, or issuesetc.org. I'm Chaplain Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Congregations work hard to keep the Word of Christ dwelling richly in His disciples now and into eternal life. We work to help and support that effort. Learn more at lcms.org worship. You'll find resources on the church here, Bible studies on the hymns of the day, audio helps for learning to sing our services, and look for worship planning resources to find the latest from LCMS Worship. That's lcms.org slash worship. May the word of Christ dwell richly in you. With the war on chocolate that's been happening around us lately, it's time to change up our Easter gift giving. And Ad Crucem has a solution. 
We have hundreds of beautiful wares to enhance your and your loved one's devotions. See our prayer beads, icons, wooden plaques, incense burners, and of course, our beautiful new chancel culture mugs and swag. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. From New York's beautiful Hudson Valley, visit us at the Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer, Peekskill, New York, a small, confessional, conservative Lutheran church with traditional Lutheran liturgical worship, gospel-rich, shenanigan-free. For more information, visit us at OurRedeemerLCMS.org. Christological. Creedal. Confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian, should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men, to be those proclaimers, to be those men who, who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. It's part two of our series with Dr. John Bombaro preaching the end of times. He's director of theological education for Eurasia for the Office of International Mission of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and author of a series of columns titled Preaching the End Times Better. He's also a graduate of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, where they form servants in Jesus Christ to teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. For more information on studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess, Visit ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. John, how would you correct kind of the typical reading of 1 Corinthians 15 regarding the phrase, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh? With John's second epistle and verse 7, this is such an important text, one that's frequently glossed over. I was alerted to this as a seminarian, and it was Thomas Winger, who's at Concordia Seminary in St. Catharines. When he had brought me to this text, I literally was stunned. The Greek here is quite clear. In 2 John 7, the Apostle disabuses those who deny Christ's ongoing parousia in Holy Communion. In his first epistle, he's disabusing those who denied his first parousia, the advent, the incarnation. Now he's dealing with those who are denying the incarnate one continually present with us, which is going to terminate for St. Peter as well as John, but Peter has this as part of his burden in writing Second Peter in the final parousia, or the last parousia. So what John does is he writes in the strongest possible terms. 
And like Peter in Second Peter chapters 2 and 3 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to juxtapose deceivers with their lies with the fact of the ever-incarnate, ever-present Christ Jesus. And this is the passage he writes, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So he's using some of the same phraseology as Peter in referring to deceivers, right? You know, these deceivers are setting forth an antichrist, remembering that the word anti means other than. They're presenting someone other than the Christ. Well, let's go back and do some basic Christology here. Who is the Christ? He is one person with two natures, fully divine and fully human. The fully human nature includes the transformation of humanity's physicality, the resurrection of the body. This is the one Christ. If we're espousing a Christ that is a fully disembodied Christ, we're only talking about the spirit presence of Jesus, divorced from or separated from his humanity, then we are not talking about the Christ of Holy Scripture. We're not talking about the one born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was died, who rose again on the third day. We're talking another Christ. John brings this up here, and he uses a really important word in the Greek, and it's the word that's translated coming. And the problem is that we Lutherans haven't done a full translation of the Scriptures, because I think this is a passage we would focus on to make sure that it's rendered clearly. Coming can kind of give the impression that it refers to a past event or maybe a final event. I like to take a survey of those that I'm teaching with respect to this passage and say, when John says, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the the flesh, to what period is he referring? They go, oh, well, it was the Advent, past tense, or future tense. He's talking about the coming of Christ, but that is not the case. What he is using there is a word that is a present participle. It's a, a participle of indirect discourse. He's saying that Jesus Christ comes, or that Jesus Christ continually comes in the flesh. So here's the point, that we have deceivers out there who are saying that Jesus Christ does not continually come in the flesh. Oh, he may come spiritually, but he doesn't come as the incarnate one. John says here that such a one is a deceiver. They are not teaching the way of truth, and in fact, they are antichrist because they are espousing one who is other than the Christ. This passage here should give us great, great comfort. The error that people have is that they're denying the physicality of Christ, and so it's also easy to deny the future of the world, or even the resurrection of our own physicality. After all, the idea of the resurrection is No, just an idea. Jesus Jesus is up there, out there. But when Jesus actually shows up continually as the incarnate one under the auspices of bread and wine, other physical things, it is communicating to us the promise that physicality, by the promise of the Word of God, by the presence of the one who is the Word of God, can and will, in fact, be transformed. It will be renewed. So the continual coming of Christ gives us a great insurance is that Jesus is the one who came in the flesh, 
who continually comes in the flesh and who will come in the flesh. And this colors the way that we understand what is going to, in fact, happen in the final parousia. You say that the ascension of Jesus isn't a disappearing act. What do you mean by that? By the phrase disappearing act, I'm actually borrowing this from Pastor Brian Thomas in his uh, wonderful book, Wittenberg versus Geneva. And in there, he's having a discussion about the difference between the Reformed or evangelical understanding of the Ascension and our biblical Lutheran understanding of the Ascension. So the Ascension, some people choose to interpret as Jesus's disappearing act, that when he's taken up and is obscured by the cloud, that means that Jesus is gone. He's disappeared from the earth, and he'll not be seen here again or encountered here again in the same way. That's to say, embodied until the last day. That is not the case. The scriptures do not speak about the cloud of the Lord with the idea of the non-presence of God, but rather the abiding presence of God. So the cloud that we find in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, that would otherwise obscure human sight of Jesus, we can't think of that as like an ordinary rain cloud that's hiding Jesus from us. Rather, scriptures talk about the abiding presence of this cloud, a cloud otherwise known as the Shekinah, or the glory presence of the Lord, as the abiding presence of the Lord. And so what's being intimated in Jesus's transfiguration is also being brought forth with respect to the ascension, that Christ's abiding presence is now being transfigured. There's a wonderful explanation given to us by the late and noble Norman Nagel. He says this, that cloud was a guarantee of the presence of God. So at the ascension, a cloud is used to mark Jesus's entry into the realm of God, which we can neither understand nor measure with our present little thoughts and limited experience. The cloud means that he is no longer within our ordinary limits. Jesus is now present and does things in the whole range of God's way of being present and doing things while remaining a man, but a man fulfilled and glorified. So the ascension is really a fantastic way of communicating, not that Jesus has gone away and is no longer with us, but he's now with us with all the abilities that belong to the divine and that embodied. Remember, Jesus is the manifestation of the living God. In him, all the fullness of the deity dwelt bodily. He is the very icon or icon, the image of the invisible God. And so what's happening in Holy Communion is the fulfillment of what took place with respect to the ascension, that Christ's abiding and glorious presence is with us in an embodied state. How does the ascension essentially preach the future appearance of Jesus? Jesus explicitly identified his physical presence with his body and blood for the express purpose of self-giving, self-donation, of communion. Now, we've got a Latin term there, com with union, to give us union with himself. So the apostles are communicating the truth that the ascension 
preaches the future appearing of Jesus because the full justification of Christ, the full transformation of him, and because he is the God-man uniquely. He is the monogenes. He is sui generis. He is the word made flesh. He is God indeed with us, Emmanuel, that he can be with us in Saskatoon, Sheboygan, and San Diego at the same time in Holy Communion and yet not move, as it were, not be transported or go from location to location. Christ is with us, and the ascension is communicating that Christ is abidingly present. Now we go to the promises of Jesus. How and where did Jesus say that he's abidingly present with us? Well, of course, he said it in those promises that we heard earlier, even from John 14 and Matthew 28, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, how did he say he would be with us? John chapter 6 communicates this to us in spades. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I am in him and he is in me. And this is why our devotion to Holy Communion is so critically important because it's tied to the hope of the resurrection and therefore our understanding at the end times. We're talking about preaching the end times with Dr. John Bombaro, author of a series of columns titled Preaching the End Times Better. On the other side, how does a denial of Jesus' continual presence with his church in the Eucharist lead to Gnosticism? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Pastor Peter Bender talking about his presentation at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference at Concordia University, Chicago. I'm going to die. Every one of us is going to die. At the time of death, the Christian faces so many assaults. We think about the death of loved ones that causes, at times, unspeakable grief. We can be assaulted by the regret over the things that we have failed to do. We wonder about the future, what will happen to loved ones. Where shall we for refuge go? To Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. You can meet and hear Pastor Peter Bender making the case for a dying man's consolation Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. For more information, visit issuesetc.org. Old theology, new technology. You're listening to Issues Etc. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we dig further into St. Luke's Gospel with Lazarus and the rich man. Increase our faith. Unworthy servants, ten lepers, and as the lightning. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Issues Etc. listeners are needed to vote for President of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has the right to vote through a pastoral and a lay voter, two voters per congregation or parish. Voter registration must be completed by Midnight Central on March 19th of 2023. Request to be a voter at your congregation for President of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations.
Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. John Bombaro is our guest director of theological education for Eurasia for the Office of International Mission of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We're talking about preaching the end times. John, how does a denial of what you were talking about before the break, the continual presence in the Eucharist of Jesus, how does it lead to Gnosticism? Because the understanding of Jesus is typically going to default to a disembodied state, that Jesus is kind of like Jesus the friendly ghost. And here we frequently get, when I hear people talk about, oh, I really felt the presence of Jesus here, they'll be conflating the Holy Spirit with Jesus. In other words, they'll be conflating pneumatology with Christology, rather than understanding pneumatology through Christology. The two are not the same. The Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. And so when we deny the abiding presence of Christ in Holy Communion, when we take things like the Ascension and we allow that to provide a narrative for the disembodied state of Christ and His absence from us, then we wind up abandoned down here. And further, we wind up retreating internally to try and find Jesus. So the miracle is never outside of us, it's always inside of us. Let me explain that in just a moment. What I mean by that is this, the one thing that we're all looking for, that we're craving as human beings is, please provide for me the reality of the manifestation of the divine presence. Where is God really present for us? And this is a question about the miraculous. Where is God miraculously present in our reality? Well, in the Reformed faith, it's going to be in the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, as you move from fear to terror to the next phase, which is hearing the gospel to joy and release. The order of salvation is the miracle, but the locus for it is within oneself. Likewise, within evangelicalism, it is about the will asking Jesus one heart, capitulating with respect to one's feelings and emotions toward Jesus, choosing him. And the location, the locus of that miracle is going to be in oneself. Pentecostals, they're at least concerned about the manifestation aspect, and the manifestation is is going to be in things like speaking in tongues, healing ministry, words of knowledge, etc. But again, the locus for it is the individual. The person is the miracle. It is only in our great Catholic tradition where we move away from the subjective to the objective, which calls us to conform to its reality and to dictate to us how we are to conform and comport to the reality of the divine presence with us. The Word and the sacraments provide that for us where Jesus is objectively present in the sacraments, calling us to conform to that reality. It's the external miracle that anchors itself in monumental events and in human history. And because those things don't move or shake like the interior of one's subjective impressions, it gives us stability and hope. How does our current culture invite and cultivate that kind of Gnosticism that grows out of denying Christ's presence? In the article, I talk about the tipping of dominoes. And my point was this, that once the domino of Christ's Holy Communion presence is tipped, 
in other words, knocked over and denied, then follows the fall of other dominoes moving backwards in time. In Second Peter, what we found was the denial of the resurrection, and then therefore the denial of the crucifixion and blood atonement of the Son of God, and therefore the denial of the incarnation of the Word. You, you see, they said that all things were continuing on as they always had, that, that nothing had really changed. And that can only happen when Christ is not present abidingly. When Christ is not present abidingly, and we doubt those things, when we're not called to conform to the reality of the divine say-so, then we're open to a whole host of different interpretations, and particularly a retreat to the interior. And that's what happens in so much religion. Our current culture invites this because it is not the objectivity of the external word, and that external word performed, and that external word made manifest in the sacraments that determines our reality. Instead, when, like Aldrich Zwingli, he says that Jesus' words must be interpreted by his philosophy of language, that reality is now going to be determined by man's reason, limited and failing it may be, then we become the knowers rather than the disciples, the ones who learn from the objective truth that's been given to us. In other words, there's really this great gift that's been given to Christianity that keeps it on the rails, and that is God's Word is true, and Christ is abidingly present with us as the Incarnate One, so that no matter what kind of storms are blowing into the world and into our lives, we know that we're anchored in something objective. The Word made flesh, the Word crucified and resurrected, the Word sacramented and proclaimed, so that there's an unbroken chain that will take us even through death, indeed, even to the end time itself. Well, finally, what does the proper preaching of the end times do to equip hearers to live until Jesus' reappearance? Well, the proper preaching will extol the virtues of patience and faith, that these things are to be exercised by the Christian. We have been abiding for nearly 2,000 years. In God's timing, that may approximate about two days, not very much time at all. But throughout that time, what he's given us is patience and faith. And we shouldn't just think of these things as virtues were to cultivate up on our own, things that are be mustered by our own strength. But we learn in Galatians that these are the very fruit of the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us in holy baptism. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, and self-control. These things have been given to us. In other words, it's part of our participation in being resurrection people even now, resurrected in our spirits. We can abide patiently because we're abiding in Christ, and that's going to bring us to the point of fruition. St. Paul talked about it this way in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, which we now stand. The idea of standing is important abiding patiently, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, hope always bound up with those end-time elements of the resurrection of our body and the full vindication of us 
before the living and the dead. Not only that, he writes, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So this is what proper preaching does. It encourages people to be patient as they endure, even in the midst of suffering, and to do so with faith, because our faith has a future hope which is anchored in the fact of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but what's more, his abiding presence with us in Holy Communion and the promises of the Gospel. We're not a left alone, and he himself nurtures patience and faith in us as we move through the church calendar and the liturgical calendar, celebrating the life of Christ week in and week out, with every Sunday being a celebration particularly of the resurrection and therefore promissory of the resurrection to come. Dr. John Bombaro is Director of Theological Education for Eurasia for the Office of International Mission of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He's author of a series of columns titled Preaching the End Times Better. You can read this series at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. John, thanks. It's always a pleasure, Todd. Thank you. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss authenticating the Gospel of John with Shane Rosenthal. We'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Sean Denzer about Jesus healing a man born blind in John chapter 9. And we'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways.